has written a book which many critics have said is the most important book ever put together about a single crime, that towering classic in cold blood. In the early morning hours of November 15, 1959, four gunshots sounded from the clutter home of Holcomb, Kansas. The clutter family, Herb, his wife Bonnie, their children Nancy and Kenyon were senselessly murdered. The least likely candidates to be murder victims. Herb was a Kansas success story, college educated, a wealthy farmer, a pillar of the Garden City community. President Eisenhower had selected him to serve on the Federal Farm Credit Board. Kansas would never be the same. The heartland of America was innocent no longer. What seemed like a senseless murder Hello, welcome to A People's History of Violence, the podcast where we go entirely too deep into history's crimes, coups, conspiracies, cover-ups, assassinations, affairs, terrors, and trials. I am still your co-host, Isaac. And I'm your co-host, Peter. And today we're we're dealing with a topic that I can tell you is near and dear to Isaac's heart. Mm. But true crime mythology. Yeah. My my personal boogeyman. Mm. Oh, boogeyman. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you, it hasn't quite become as personal an issue for me as it has for, for you, but I think you've made a pretty convincing case. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a case of uh, whatever, like, getting hung over on your own supply might be. Mm, yeah. Going entirely too deep until I, I my body rejects the product. Mm. And here I am. But I did read a, a classic work of American literature. Yes. As a result of this. I'm one, in favor of. One that uh, mo- many of our listeners might be uh, familiar with as they are assigned to read it in high school. I know I was assigned to read it yeah, in high school. Yeah, it's a little bit weird when you think about and, it. And then I think I didn't. I think, I think, I it's, I think it's just, you know, my, I, I have a close relative who teaches high school English, and they say that at the end of the day, you you assign, there's stuff you have to assign them, and there's the stuff that you assign them because the students might actually read it. And this seems to fall into the second category. Yeah. But it is it is part of the mandatory American education in true crime, mm. uh, and as a result, a kind of like a morality study for students here. Yeah, gets in their minds. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what are we talking about, Peter? We are talking about Truman Capote's In Cold Blood and the Clutter Murders, which it's based on. Yes. So what I'd like to do with this episode, I guess, is to take a, a true crime paradigm story. Right. One that's just ubiquitously referenced and one that is, as we said, taught so often to high schoolers, it's it's boring. It's in the background. And it is a, a kind of a serpent in the garden story. Right. A death of innocence. And we hope to completely take the layer of mythology and mystification in this story off mm-hmm. and lay bare the material gears, cogs, wires, wheels that actually brought about the crime that's talked about within it, which is the horrific murder and it was a murder and we know who did it mm-hmm. of herbert clutter his wife his wife bonnie clutter and their daughter nancy clutter and their son kenyan clutter all in november of 1959 this of course was popularized by truman capote's in cold blood it wasn't the the very first account of the murders but it was this kind of innovative 
new type of nonfiction fiction that he called a nonfiction novel. Mm. Capote's story, I, I think, has, actually has traces of earlier kind of highbrow realist accounts that are more like fiction, like Meyer Levin's Compulsion, a favorite mm. of Meshuga Uncle Jimmy of this show. And I would argue probably the original documentary novel, which is Upton Sinclair's Boston, mm. a thoroughly political book about the Sacco and Vanzetti case. Mm. But unlike in Cold Blood, it removes the perspective of kind of a fictional character narrator, in that case, kind of a fictional character who just, you know, Forrest Gump-like encounters Sacco and Vanzetti and watches their trial and then relates the events to the reader. And that's what happens in the Sinclair yeah. Whereas in in Cold Blood, it's told from the perspective of kind of an omniscient narrator. Yeah, and it, it's even um, what's, what's called epistolary. Yeah. At times, it has entries from Nancy Clutter's diary. Right. It yeah. has um, psychiatric reports that he mm -hmm. got access to. A whole lot of things that you can get access to if you're a big New York writer with a publishing house and ten thousand dollars in small town Kansas. In 1959. Yeah, we, we can get up to that, but. I think it's it's kind of noticeable in the history of true crime in how it kind of as a kind of cognitive map that we all inhabit mm -hmm. now uh, in that it creates a couple of archetypes, even though it's not like the full realization of them. Right. Truman Capote really creates the archetype of future true crime accounts of the sadistic, violent psychopath in his characterization of Richard Hickok, or mm -hmm. Richard Gene Hickok, of course, a real person. But it's it's also a bit of a transitional novel in the sense that it actually still has this trace of sympathy for the other of the pair of killers, uh, Perry Edward Smith, and then even includes with sorry spoiler a a kind of really hard criticism of the death penalty, which mm. the movie version in 1967 even got made it even more apparent. Mm. It tried to kind of convey that it wanted to understand these men and sympathize where mm. they came from, although clearly much more Smith right. than Hickok, as Cody talked a lot more with Smith. So it helped, as far as I can tell, it helped usher in an idea of crime, particularly, A, emphasized on, emphasizing murder over and and did what you could call kind of disorganized murder. Yes. Not murder by the state, not organized crime. Uh, murder but, that's like vastly in excess of any reason for doing Yes, it. yes. So emphasizes in particular, in particular, these murders have to do, are ultimately down to individual psychopathy and evil. Right. Uh, that you might include some social context, but kind of more for local color than anything else. But at the end of the day, what you're looking at is a deep dive into the study of individuals' psychology yeah. um, and contrasting the psychology of the innocent to the guilty and of the sociopathic evil to the quote-unquote normal. Right, exactly. Which is, what we're left, which is more or less what we still have today in terms of popular true crime narratives that dominate the landscape. Definitely. And I mean, I would also, I would add there that, especially with the background of local color, that Cody depicts this, you know, idyllic mm. small town, which by the time this book comes out in the mid 60s, people feel like it's already lost or it's getting destroyed by the way that America's changing. 
and the intrusion of of you know this new crude evil mm -hmm. upon it thereby corrupting it and leaving us where we are and it fixes a firm individual responsibility for what happens on this individual killers the only part where that's obscured again is because this is not this is like a transitional book yeah and it's so it's still sympathetic with perry smith right and you know i don't think it's entire my understanding is that at least some modern true crime narratives are willing to if you find for lack of a better term a sexy enough perpetrator <laughs> uh or one with a bad enough sob story essentially one that they think will resound with readers to get at least some sympathy points i mean think about how they treated joe car sarnia yeah. um literally making him a pinup practically yeah um, i mean maybe I, I maybe we could do a Maybe we could do a Boston Strong episode someday if we didn't get enough Boston out in my silly episode about the books. Never happened. Never had Boston enough Boston. Podcast. In any event, it, it's so interesting that Capote made that move to depict this as like idyllic and as innocence lost. Because this seems like the kind of town that under normal circumstances, a man like Truman Capote would break out of shackles to escape. Yeah, absolutely. Right. This, this, uh, you know, fairly uh, flamboyant. People use the word freaky, including, I think, sometimes in a complimentary way, uh, but sometimes in a not so complimentary way, like this flamboyant, freaky, intellectual kind of gay dude who, who wrote for a living and wrote among socialites for a living. Right. He didn't write, he didn't write about like hard, hard edged journalism. He didn't write about corn prices. He wrote about he wrote about rich girls and their their flaws before he got into this. Yeah, maybe she wrote about corn and wheat prices. He actually would have understood more. Right, we're going to get close. We're going to get into some grain prices, folks. Get ready. Most revisionist accounts today, I, I should say, and frankly, most like what we would call true crime community people who address these murders, who mm -hmm. talk about them, podcasts on them they tend towards these days saying that capote's account is actually wrong crude and disgusting it's too soft on the killers mm -hmm. it puts too much sympathy he spends so, so much time humanizing them right. and romanticizing them that and he obscures and denigrates and exploits the victims by saying bad things about them or frankly like laying bare or emphasizing the wrong parts of their private lives and with, with respect to the clutters mm -hmm. um by making making bigger deals out of small town gossip as they see it i've they, definitely heard that that line get pretty homophobic yeah the idea that capote was essentially seduced yeah um, by perry um, i i I've, I've heard that line too. yeah like it, every single kind of like homophobic innuendo on mm. what on what Capote did wrong or how he, how he yeah. did it wrong is imported into people's criticism of the case. Mm. Although I would accept a couple of the critics that, sure. that we'll talk about from that. But the kind of criticism that Capote was too soft and too sympathetic rather than the opposite, kind of obscuring and making them too much of driven evil killers rather than actually researching his story, uh, that started early with Philip Tompkins' article called In Cold Fact in mm. Esquire magazine in 1967, as well as, and this continues today with the more recent documentary called Cold Blood, and I've heard the director on that interviewed and say well you know the the cold blood in cold blood book uh, really doesn't give the perspective of the victims which i found like kind of shocking considering like much of the opening of the book is just 
humanizing the victims as a very, very deliberate setup, mm-hmm. making them completely innocent. Even on the, and they weren't to be clear, these are innocent victims. They, they, these were these were kind people, but really just getting rid of any kind of um, any kind of reason they could have been killed, um, other than pure evil mm-hmm. as a setup. Yeah. You know, it's it's a windup. It's very deliberate. And I, I feel like this is in large part due to the fact that today true crime is meant to tell you something about evil yes. and that people are bad. Mm-hmm. Specific people are, are very, very evil. And you have to go ahead and, and use your platform to condemn rather than like mm-hmm. understand or, or figure out why things happened. Right. Or to, to condemn and gawk. Yeah. Like it's it, you, you get a moral uh an intellectual justification for gawking. Whereas that kind of thing, you know, just if you're gonna gawk, gawk. Why do you gotta why do you gotta make up excuses? We are actually indebted for our we we want to take a higher dimensional approach here. We're mm-hmm. we're looking at the murders from the perspective of all of the things that went into creating the killers and creating Herbert Clutter and the links in between those two worlds. Mm-hmm. And we're indebted in particular for the frankly shocking revisionist account that comes out of Gary McAvoy's book, And Every Word is True. Um, It's a pretty even-handed approach because it uses the Kansas Bureau of Investigation's own files, which they didn't even have at the Mm -hmm. time. Uh, They were held by the son of one of the lead investigators, Harold Nye. What Gary McAvoy found in his book and what we'll go in more depth into in uh, successor episodes of this one is that there is actually real substantive evidence to suggest that the Clutter family's murder was actually a murder for hire, uh, mm. a snuff job to get hard boiled with it, uh, shopped around a Kansas prison, and therefore a murder that was done for a reason, which of course raises the question of why anybody would want to pay someone to kill Clutter. Right. Yeah. And I imagine the evidence would, you know, get into that. One one hopes. <laughs> and in preparation for this episode, I also did review Kansas Department of Corrections files from the Kansas State Penitentiary on the killers, uh, which are online. And mm. some of one of the killers hit uh, letters to a guy that he was collaborating with on a book that was unpublished and the manuscript is missing uh, mm. named Matt Nations. But speaking of gawking, as you mentioned before, Peter, in Kansas, In Cold Blood is not just a novel. It basically has the position of being the official government-endorsed truth. Mm. It is the story. It's paraded as a heroic tale of Kansas law enforcement's heroic professionalism and doggedness in finding these two killers. And in these days, you know, as, as times and attitudes have changed and evolved, it's also taken as kind of a, a testament to showing the resilience of a rural Kansas community in the face of trauma. But still, same story. And it's a it's so it's a, like an official fable and recruiting tool for KBI. So uh, while the narrative that comes down on high, uh, including from the state of Kansas, our state. <laughs> is one of uh, unspeakable, transgressive, almost pornographic evil, um, spattered at times for color with tinges of sympathy and tragic understanding. Uh, the vulgar truth is that the murder of the Clutter family, in my examination, uh, and drawing a lot, on, uh, very heavily on the work of Gary McAvoy, but also on original stuff that I found here, 
The murder of the Clutter family was a strange and fascinating downstream result of the transformation of the where we all get our food from, the rural mm-hmm. economy of the United States by the government and vanguard capitalists like Herbert Clutter, a very contradictory person. Yeah, we're going to get materialist here because we, you know, Isaac thinks and he's done the research and I have it, but I agree that that's the way to get at most crimes and it's certainly the way to get to this one and especially to aspects of it that Truman Capote and also many of his critics simply have not bothered to do. We're opening up the rest of the field. We're going beyond the the house and the car and the bridge mm-hmm. and and the and the and the 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 individual psychology. Yeah. Right. And outside are, the heads of the killers. Right. They we're not trying to say that we're not trying to adjudicate the morality of the crime. We know the morality of the crime. It was a heinous crime. We know who did it and that it was wrong. Yep, it was bad. Don't do that. And but we're going to try and get at the actual reality behind it. We're we're trying to create a material map to replace the true crime map that you've got in your head. Yes. Listener. So, as a quick little intro summary, this crime was downstream of a phenomena in which that swath of the country that produces like the wheat, bread, cows, the pigs, pigs was changed from a vast quilt of family and tenant farm plots in one decade into one of vast mechanized estates mm-hmm. with tractors, ammonium nitrate sprinkled over mm-hmm. every little plot. And it also went in tandem with a national economy that forsook the social democratic route of you know having housing complexes and trains, kind of a communal experience instead went the route of isolated consumption and long, lonely stretches of car-driven highways. Uh, that blustering that I just did aside, the murders, I think, could have almost certainly been prevented by Social Security disability benefits. But that's a teaser for the future. Mm. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's get down to cases in terms of, for those of you who haven't read In Cold Blood or haven't read in a while, which is my case, what is beyond the sort of high-level overview we gave? What is the official story? Let's let's just run through it so it's clear in our hands. Yeah, because the truth is, is we're going to turn the official story way on its head. And I do happen to think there's a lot for Gary McAvoy's thesis that actually these weren't just crazy robbery murders. They were something uh, much more complex. Uh, but first, we have to tell you the story of In Cold Blood. In Cold Blood being the official story, it's necessary as an introduction. So I'll tell the uh, clean mm. uh, Kansas Bureau of Investigation, story of the clutter murders in a kind of concise, abbreviated way. In this, of course, this uh, this story is a, a murder without motive with the death of innocence, the power of evil, displacing, absorbing, and entirely the journalistic mystery, the miscarriage of justice narrative, and all those right. others. That the other we crime like. narratives we used to have. Yeah. It displaced them all, and now we have true crime. So Herb Clutter in this narrative is a solemn, reserved, but upstanding and kind man and loving father of four. And he's a equally kind and, and genial and successful farmer in Fol- Holcomb, Kansas, which is in Fanny County. Holcomb is a kind and trusting town where crimes beyond the occasional drunk and disorderly don't happen. No one locks their doors, etc. Clutter's family consists of his 16-year-old daughter, Nancy, uh, who at the time of the murder had just been on a, on a date. 
She's a joiner-upper. She was in school plays. She had a boyfriend named Bobby. Capote in, I, in the Kansas Bureau investigation, in, in my opinion, really crossed the line and opened up her diaries mm. to Capote for in cold blood. Her family didn't consent to right. that. And was there even any like useful to figuring out what happened in there? As far as figuring out what happened? No, absolutely mm. not. He, he kind of just introduced a little bit of like voyeurism into her inner life. Mm-hmm. And I mean... You could say that he does this to introduce, actually, sympathy for the victim, because there's also more embarrassing parts of you know, interviews with people who talk to Nancy Clutter that are more embarrassing to the family that he left out. Mm. But in my opinion, it, it created Nancy, it recreated Nancy Clutter after her death as kind of a character mm. and an archetype mm. for the innocent high school girl, who, of course, it being... Yeah, just uh, Peter just shocked me for a moment by pulling out nightmare fuel in the form of 3D printed teeth. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I like to fidget. We all do. Yeah. Well, now that I'm used to it, it's it's fine. fine. Yeah. But, but you're not, you're not I'm, I'm inoculated against it now. Yeah. But back to Nancy. Like, so Nancy is kind of recreated as this character of this innocent high schooler. She's obviously like very like smart, precocious. Mm. Like she was going places, but now she's kind of permanently stuck in this victim portrayal. And I, I mean, I think that she's like a partial inspiration for Laura Palmer. That won't be surprising. Yeah. Uh, from Twin Peaks. Yeah. Kenyon, her younger brother, he's 15 years old. He's a bit more introverted. He's a tinker. He likes, you know, working cars and tractors. He's widely liked, mm-hmm. even if he's a bit shy. Mm-hmm. Clotter's wife, Bonnie. Um, had a depressive streak uh, since she gave birth to her son, Kenyon, uh, but actually found out right before the murders that with a new operation on her back, she might be relieved of the pain and consequent depression that she feels, uh, according to the story. So you said, uh, you say he was a father of four, whoever the other two kids? His other two daughters had been married off and were out of the house. Okay, okay. So these are the ones left in the clutter Yes. Home. I, I don't really like that people say like, oh, Capote just characterized Bonnie Clutter as this uh, depressive mess who never did anything. He characterizes her as like being sad, mm. but it's not as if she, he says that she's a complete wreck or anything. Right. That doesn't actually explain any reason why. And that's why he includes this thing of like her, you know, she was just about to be cured. Yeah, yeah. Which, which might be a little bit of a invention of his but in the early morning hours of november 15th 1959 in capote's telling two paroled ex-convict intruders richard eugene hickok and perry edward smith came into the clutter home through an unlocked door as they didn't lock their doors in this innocent town and they took the family hostage they moved them at gunpoint into the basement tied them up and in a futile search for a safe in Mr. Clutter's home, which didn't exist, they operating under a belief that he had loads of cash in the house. In fact, he paid all everything in his whole business and farm by check. You know, that futile belief, they grew enraged and murdered every member of the family, stabbing Mr. Clutter in the neck before blowing his head off, and then brutally shooting every member of the Clutter family. Uh, before robbing them of the paltry sum of less than $50 in cash gathered from a wallet and a purse, as well as a pair of binoculars and a transistor radio. Strangely, and even Capote finds this strange, uh, they left an envelope of cash sitting in plain view, as well as all of the family's jewelry. 
The two killers uh, left no shells and no fingerprints wearing gloves, but did leave sets of boot prints in cold blood, uh, revealing two distinct boot patterns. One had a diamond-shaped tread, and then the other, boot for later, had a cat's paw figure on the tread. Smith, Perry Edward Smith, one of the killers, then buried some of their implements, uh, gloves, rope, shotgun shells, that they used in the murder in a shallow pit he dug on the side of the road with the knife that his companion, Richard Hickok, used in the murder. They then made some hot checks in Kansas City, that's false or forged checks, before rushing off to Mexico, where they pawned the radio and binoculars and run out of cash. They kind of continue on an ambling, directionless odyssey through Miami and on Florida for the winter, or going back to Kansas. It's during around this time that the motive for murder was revealed. A Kansas State Penitentiary inmate grew a conscience, went to the warden, and his name was Floyd Wells. The warden or the prisoner? Sorry, the prisoner's name was Floyd Wells. Wells states to the warden that he had inadvertently uh, kind of relayed a rumor or created a rumor to Richard Hickok, who was a fellow prisoner within the cellmate at Kansas State Penitentiary. Wells said that he used to work as a farm laborer for uh, Mr. Herbert Clutter and that Clutter had huge amounts of cash, as much as $10,000 in a safe at his house, or at least Wells thought and may have exaggerated or implied the wrong thing. Wells praised Clutter as a good man, an honest employer, and was shocked to learn of his death, which prompted his kind of search for conscience and what to do, whether he might be called a snitch for going to the warden. With this new information, the Prison goes to the Kansas uh, Bureau of Investigation, and they interview Wells, believe his story in this account, and begin putting out wanted flyers. They put out wanted flyers um, for Smith, Hickok, and they may have even come across Smith's name at that time as well. Smith and Hickok at this time were headed to Las Vegas, uh, around where Smith is actually from. He was born in Nevada. They are detained by the Las Vegas Police Department for driving a stolen vehicle that they had boosted during their kind of wanderings. And they were also trying to dispose of a box which contained the boots used in the murder, which they still hadn't gotten rid of. Hmm. The KBI agents came to Las Vegas. They interrogate Smith and Hickok separately. Both of them basically blame the other. Hickok blames the whole murder spree on Smith, saying that he wanted to basically rob the place and that Smith, uh, you know, wouldn't Wangro and just start killing people. Harriet Smith, by contrast, says that they killed a uh, 2-2 split, that he killed the the men and mm. that Hickok, uh, the crazier of the two and the, the more sadistic, after trying to rape one of the women, uh, killed both of them. Mm. Now, the KBI, with the information that they get from Smith, his confession, uh, and with assistance from a civil engineer, find the shallow pit where the items like the shotgun shells and the rope and so on are buried. They raid the Hickok family farm and find the shotgun used in the murders. So with this evidence, the matching boot prints complete with boots, the shotgun shells ballistically matched by the KBI to the shotgun that was found on Hickok's family farm and confessions from both of the defendants mm -hmm. This trial is, is pretty much a breeze as far as proving that Hickok and Smith did it. Yeah. 
knowing this full well, and knowing that also uh, Boyd Wells will testify, both defendants try to go for an insanity defense, mm -hmm. a defense which would require them to show that they did not understand the difference between right and wrong at the time of the crime. They both get evaluated by a psychiatrist from the manager clinic, uh, which is, I think, based in Wichita time? It might be Topeka. Topeka, yes. Yeah, because I think that's the basis for uh, the, the, or they might, it might even just be the manager clinic and the novel, uh, the Topeka School yeah. right, by Ben Lerner, which I like. But anyway, go on. Yeah, I mean, Carl Manager, uh, involved with that clinic, obviously, uh, he was actually very well known for a while for a book called The Crime of Punishment. Interesting. Um, which made the case, essentially, that criminality is caused by doing crimes to the people who become criminals. Yeah, hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, the trial is a breeze. Uh, Foy Wells testifies, as well as all the others involved, after the failed insanity defense, uh, the two killers, uh, Smith and Hickok, are convicted, and they are hung after their appeals are exhausted on April 14th, 1965. So I still use hanging at the time. Yes. Hmm. Uh, Capote kind of concludes this account with uh, the, the long durée of after Smith and Hickok's capture with a lot of digressions on Smith living in this cell that's actually part of uh, like the under sheriff's office. So he develops a relationship with the under sheriff's wife who makes some sandwiches. He clearly shows regret over the crimes, becomes very devoutly religious, hopes God will forgive him. And that part in particular, I think, is what irks people who just want him to say these people were bad in the yeah. story. Yeah. Shifting gears, uh, I think we should complicate this narrative now. <laughs> yeah. So that's the that's the Capote version and here now. That's the official story, man. <laughs> right. If it, not just the Capote version, the, the state of Kansas version. Yeah. Like basically the official version, like Isaac said. Now we're gonna bring our particular type of analysis to bear. We'll start out here with a, a deep, almost forensic and economic examination of the frankly like Lynchian blue velvet two-faced world mm. of Herb Clutter and his dominion. Right. And I don't mean by that that Herb Clutter's a bad person. Right, or that he deserved it, but he got no one deserves that. Yeah, no one deserves that. But then we'll move on to examining the dark underworld economy of Kansas, and specifically uh this kind of pit nether world that the state of Kansas created in the Kansas State Penitentiary at Lansing that Smith and Hickok both passed through. Because mm. I think this is like the one most neglected parts of this whole narrative. It's you have two people who don't have a history of violently assaulting or murdering, uh, or getting close to murdering people before, at least apparently. Mm. I mean, Smith, that actually gets a little complicated. And there's no question of like, did this institution that they both were put into have a role in making them into some of the most violent, notorious killers that Kansas ever knew, mm. were actually still suspected of a whole separate family murder in Florida. Oh, interesting. So first, I, I think I'd like to talk about what kind of is at the very beginning of the narrative, which is that this was a death of innocence. And we can kind of scorn and sneer at it, but against what you might think about my cynical, hard-boiled attitude mm. in these cases, there really was a death of innocence here in this mm -hmm. case. 
but it's not for the reason you think. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a very e- easy sneering reply of like, well, was this time really innocent? Mm-hmm. You know, is this small town really that nice? But there, uh, there was a real decline in trust in Holcomb mm-hmm. after the murder. The day after the murder, and this comes up in the documentary Cold Blooded, even the h- local hardware store just completely sells out of locks as everybody's trying to bolt down their houses and turn it into fortresses, to use the <laughs> phrase from old Frederick Ingalls. <laughs> and prior to this, it really was a community with high social trust. There's a whole lot of anecdotal evidence on this. But I mean, I've done research going back through the fucking Garden City Telegraph, <laughs> or Telegram, their local newspaper. And this seems to be a place where there's not much bad stuff happening. <laughs> Others did not think that one would rob, cheat, or undermine or hurt them, like right. period. We often see discussion of communities and this, you know, gets those like Vox think pieces mm-hmm. that are out um, as having like higher and lower social trust. Mm-hmm. So in global comparisons, for example, like people in Denmark will answer very, very strongly, like, I trust other people. Right. And same thing with like Norway, etc. And the US is like, no, 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 no not so much. Yeah, yeah. This type of social trust, as I kind of mentioned earlier, directly impacted how the murders happened and that they happened at all. The clutter's door was unlocked. Yeah. It had no barriers to others, like much less like Herb Clutter didn't have like a gun at the ready. Right. It's not the what we would assume of places in the Midwest where, yeah, everything everyone's armed up yeah yeah and i mean this does take place in an era before that's really definitely the case yeah especially in like a more northern part of the midwest yeah i i even wonder and i don't have like a real clear base to say this that holcomb in this regard and garden city were a bit different Mm. than maybe a lot of other places in the midwest but what i can say so this this spirit of innocence that these people felt where they just could kind of go on other people's land everyone left their door unlocked so that because you want that to be unlocked in case your neighbors come over because they want to talk to you Mm. you know that was actually a spirit that was engendered by years of stability and relative egalitarianism Mm. and nurtured by as I'll describe, federal funds and cooperative systems built over decades in reaction to the boom-bust deprivation of right. being a farmer on your own in Kansas. Yeah, because I was just thinking this is, okay, so it's the late 50s. Within living, I mean, certainly within living memory, you would have had times in Kansas and in the Great Plains in general when it would have been much more dangerous. Yes. And you wouldn't want to leave your door unlocked when people on your land, you know, the dramatic version would be, they could be from a robber gang or, you know, Native Americans uh, displeased by your taking their land or or even, you know, hobos. Yeah. Which, you know, if if you may not feel, you may or may not should feel uh, threatened by them but they might very well break into your barn and sleep there when you don't want them to yeah i mean steal pies from your window Kansas is actually in particular uh with dodge city not that far away like was notorious for having bank robbing gangs yeah. for having store robbing gangs mm-hmm. for having people who would just want to hold you up for some chickens or food yeah like, like you have a lot of poor people you had a lot of desperate people as a it's the middle of the country. It's a crossroad. Yeah, it's a pass-through for going from east to west, which a lot of people were doing in the 30s and 20s and everything. Yeah, so the fact that it was, you know, 1959, it was coming to the end of a period of innocence that people thought 
was a was around long enough for people to come to think of it as a natural state. Yeah, even like, though it hadn't always been that way. It, it, within that living memory, it wasn't yeah. that way. And so that is a pretty remarkable social fact that I think is worth excavating. And it, spoiler alert, it takes money. It, it takes money and like kind of systems of social technology. Yes. yes. Right. Not just dumping money in a la, you know, an oil boom, but money harnessed to a project. Right. That, that wants to create this sort of society. And I, I guess I want to say that I guess how this relates rather, I guess how this relates to the murder of her clutter and his family is that the murder is simply the like explosive tip of what's really a kind of a moment of meltdown mm. in this whole architecture that, that created a spirit of, of peace and innocence about this community. It's the moment when like the, the toxic gas escapes the engine and pollutes the whole thing. And as a result, everybody in that process the family the extended family the community all are, are threatened and change and no longer trust people which um, will in turn accelerate the social social disintegration exactly if you no longer trust people you're more likely to cheat them and so on but as you were saying you know i i went and i did a, a bit of a deep dive into what made garden city and holcomb kind of seem innocent because capote just makes well it's small Small mm -hmm. people know each other. If they know right. each other, they like each other. I was from a rural town. Mm -hmm. It's much more kind of like suburban and absorbed now yeah. than it was before in Texas. And let me tell you, it was not as, you might see the same people, but that doesn't mean you trust them. Yeah, like, 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 <laughs> yeah. And uh, Garden City is different. So you rewind the clock back to like the 30s before the intervention of like the New Deal and agricultural adjustment and all that stuff. And you have foreclosures pop up in the Garden City mm. newspapers. It's not necessarily a nice place, but over time with stuff that they had been trying to build since the populist era, like since the late 19th mm -hmm. century, Garden City and Holcomb became totally presided over by a set of government-supported cooperative institutions mm -hmm. that, it's hard to say this enough, I'll say, um, it's it's hard to get the right pitch. It's hard to get the right pitch to say this, but Garden City Co-op basically operated the whole local economy. Like mm -hmm. it has its hand in everything. Yes. Like everyone is actually up in each other's business economically mm -hmm. at this time. And what I mean by that is the, the Garden City Cooperative, which is this institution created by the farmers that they all own shares in around Garden City. It's a, it's a we'll protect each other by all in, pulling our resources and mm -hmm. investing in this cooperative mm -hmm. organization, kind of a company that is mutually owned. They act as kind of like a mini socialist institution or system that would buy up the individual armors, uh, individual farmers, wheat, cattle, corn, barley, vegetables, whatever, store it in gigantic co-op silos that are owned by the co-op and then transport them to warehouses that are owned by the co-op. Right. And they have a relationship with agricultural buyers. So that yes. it's not just individual family farmers trying to bargain with these food processing companies yes. that pass them that that have a vested interest obviously in uh buying cheap and selling deer like any like any company does. 
there's very few economic enterprises in this world that are as precarious as individual farming, particularly for staple crops. Right. right? If you happen to get in on a boom in a given commodity, uh, then you can make some money until the inevitable bust. But with staple crops, it's a real raw deal unless you can organize and be able to negotiate better prices for yourself. Because all if you do the classic small business things of just working harder and producing more, all that's going to do is continue to lower prices. You know, and the, you'll you'll have the, you'll have done a massive outlay. Yes. Of, of planting a crop, and then you have bad weather that year, and mm-hmm. then all of, all of the loans that you took out to plant to get people to work your fields or whatever, mm-hmm. it's all gone. Seeds and everything, yes. And you're bankrupt. Yeah, and that's that's all she wrote. And Kansas and every part, every agricultural part of the country had been through this generation upon generation. They knew what was involved. And some people, generations of people tried to do something about it. And by the mid-30s, it looked like they were starting to get somewhere. Yeah, I, I mean, there is a reason, as Thomas Frank kept pointing out, there was actually mm-hmm. a reason, and it's rooted in this material fact that mm. Kansas had multiple counties voting socialists, oh, yes. Eugene Debs, and was sending populist senators mm-hmm. to congressmen to Congress. But specifically in Garden City, which is this big, like, kind of like beef and wheat transshipment point mm-hmm. to like other parts of the country, the co op doesn't just have these farming stations, they just keep expanding out mm-hmm. like this like ever-expanding like quasi-kibbutz or coffee. Right. They own a gas station, like they own a general store. I think they have a grocery store. You get the idea. Like those stores could see why the co-ops would want to expand. And of course, you know, why not keep expanding? Because the logic is the same if if a little less dire in most areas of the economy, that you're better off organizing Mm -hmm. to get what you want as opposed to and it's it's also worth noting that whatever else was going on here, okay, they're organizing to get what they want, but they're organizations of individual farms, right? Right, of family farms. They're not expropriating them and saying, okay, now you're part of the coal costs, yeah. essentially, yeah. right? They're they're actually kind of bending over backwards if you if you look at it from a certain perspective to maintain a family farm system right with with just enough cooperation in the kind of cultural context that would be acceptable to american farmers yeah exactly and i mean this this actually like really goes to kind of what becomes the the problem or like the the real snake in the garden here with Holcomb and Garden City is this was not an arrangement of equal shares. Mm-hmm. This is farmers of different sized plots and different advantages mm-hmm. and different uh, relationships with the local bank. Mm-hmm. Well, that's different, good, right? You want diversity. <laughs> different knowledges. Uh, some uh, are German, some are Swedes. Sorry. Some are rich, some are poor. Uh, Same thing. Yeah. They own different numbers of shares in the co-op, mm-hmm. obviously, and they receive according to that. Mm-hmm. And also, I believe this entitles them to different voting rights, but I'm not sure mm-hmm. on the specifics of the Garden City Co-ops yeah, Charter. You, haven't, you couldn't find that online? You know what? I'm sure I could. They have a very proud 
historical website, oh, the Garden City Co-op, which is still going strong for with, them. You know, a few corporate farmers that are still <laughs> But I mean, notably, this was too socialistic for like right wing Washington mm -hmm. by the night, mm -hmm. time of the 1950s. Like Mormon grandee secretary of yes. agriculture, Ezra Taft Benson, wanted these things taxed. Mm. And he, he thought that they were like skimping on taxes by getting around like the corporate tax by being cooperatives with mm. farmers rather than big corporation. As a result, they were living high on the hog with all these family farmers. Uh, they weren't really living no. high on the hog. These are these are pretty modest organizations. Yeah. But it was during the 1950s, though, that the radical transformation of American farming, which cannot be understated, mm -hmm. that transformation of American farming into an increasingly industrial, mechanized industry upends and transforms this whole cooperative mm -hmm. background. Now, rural America, Peter, mm -hmm. in the 1950s, uh, had what we might call a revolution. Mm -hmm. Anyways, a rural American 1950s went through kind of a massive ungluing and unsettling for uh, Wendell Berry. Mm. to write about this. And, but it was the same kind of unsettling that was actually going on in a lot of the world. Mm -hmm. It's just the U.S. being the U.S. took a somewhat of a different path. It went from a mosaic of small farms, uh, newly buttressed by price supports and government buying, these kind of post-New Deal programs, but still being very extremely backward for small farms to a kind of consolidated mass of mechanized farms. By mechanized, I mean farmers with tractors, mm -hmm. chemical fertilizer, threshers, machinery. Eventually, you start getting into genetic engineering and custom seeds. Yep. So essentially... We're talking about the Green Revolution. Yes. Right. We think of that as something that happened primarily in like other parts of the world, but it definitely happened here as well. It and the the almost the entire transformation really happens in the 1950s. It doesn't happen that much before it. So as late as 1950, less than half of American farms, so 47%, had any tractor use at all. Awesome. That means that more than half of American farms in 1950, like literally there's television. Mm -hmm. Right. They got by with a combination of animal labor in mm -hmm. the form of mules and sometimes oxen, although Americans really favor the mule mm -hmm. and human muscle power. Literally mm -hmm. guys out there with a plow yeah. and a mule. Mm -hmm. 
Farms needed to mechanize, however, in order to guarantee a steady flow of food, both mm-hmm. to the U.S. public, mm-hmm. uh, which had just gotten back from World War II, and the world. Uh, yes. Europe hadn't rebuilt its economies too quickly. And eventually it becomes, you know, massive U.S. agricultural surpluses become a weapon in the cloak. Yes, precisely. Now, the shape and the course this mechanization took, this introduction of tractors and, and all this other machinery, and chemical fertilizers, pesticides, and clutter's role in that were actually shaped, as you mentioned, by like anti-communism, the country at large, and the role America would play as a bulwark against it. So in the 1950s, talking about mules again, there were 4.1 million mules on American wow. farms whose only use, their only reason they're there is be or it's pulling a plow. And I mean, they're they're not fertile, so. Yeah, they just yeah. How do they even they're they're just making mules and plowing just with them. Mules and plowing with them. By 1959, five years later, in the year Herbert Clutter was murdered, his new house, his large anchorage, there were so few so few mules in the United States, the Department of Agriculture stopped counting them. So now there's we don't even know how many mules are out there. Yeah, we just know it's not a lot. I imagine most of them are probably on petting zoos at this point. I would think so, or like, yeah. And uh, by the way, I just want to say uh, I owe a lot here to this guy, Ryan Stockwell's dissertation, which really consolidated a yeah, lot of shout, sources. Shout, shout out to Rye. I hope he's okay with being called Rye. You're probably wondering, how does this get to... Uh, the creation of like the murder victim. Yeah, what's he got to do? Which I will say, getting to that. So you need to understand that American farmers at this time needed to buy this big farm machinery if they wanted to keep up with the market. Though the government subsidized in a kind of hybrid capitalist socialist way, American farming, the way that they did this, the key cornerstone was something called the price of work. Mm-hmm. where if the market price of a good fell below 90% below this thing, kind of determined statistic called parity, where you can make a, they've determined that you can make a decent profit and a living standard on your mm-hmm. farm, then the government would cut you a check for the difference. Mm-hmm. In other words, during good price times, you could make a surplus, but during bad price times, you still get paid an amount that you could keep going the next year mm-hmm. and even expand a bit, hopefully. Mm-hmm. They were trying to actually to raise rural living standards with this, mm-hmm. but you're paid with this price support on the basis of your total production. Mm-hmm. So bigger farm, more better mechanized, you, then your average is up. And so the check the government will cut you in the lean years will be bigger. Exactly. And you need it to be bigger because otherwise you can't keep your acreage and your tractor. And let's not forget. Uh, you know, constantly, okay, you, you buy a tractor once, hopefully, but like you got to buy fertilizer. Fertilizers are the real thing here. Yeah. From what I know of the Green Revolution, you got to buy that ammonium nitrate every year. That's a constant input. So they need to buy this machinery. They need to buy this new technology and plant more for export all over the world if they are able to survive, these farmers. So those who do acquire the new tractors and machinery expanded, got bigger farms and bought up the failing ones around them. And those who didn't were forced to sell off their farms or branch out into other businesses, like working on other bigger farms as managers or farmhands or opening up roadside shops to tap into the, you know, 
the new system of people driving along highways in their right. long cars. Right, because this is also when the interstates start getting built, also impelled by the Cold War and military Keynesianism. <laughs> and the, the the net result of that for our story, though, is a bunch of people driving around in their cars to see these hayseed birds mm-hmm. pointing at them and needing to get their cars fixed or gassed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and or, that's where the farmhands and the farm families went, is in right. those gas up and fix when up these, stations. When these, the people who could not afford the tractors and the ammonium nitrate uh, fertilizer and could not get the same price supports um, or fell on hard times, perhaps didn't have the same kind of connections with the cooperative mm-hmm. and had to sell to somebody. Yeah. But like many or even most uh, of these people in rural America at the time, which, you know, when we start out this decade, like still about uh, a fifth to a quarter of the population of the mm-hmm. U.S., uh, many of them just packed up, sold off the farm and went to the nearest city to work in a factory or a shop or ended up if they were less lucky as kind of seasonal rural drifters mm. going around as farmhands where they could. In For purposes of our story, Richard Hickok, the future killer's father, and he himself became auto mechanics during this transformative time. Uh, they, he grew up on an ab, what he characterized kind of like an average income farm. It was 44 acres of land in Olathe, Kansas. Uh, another guy who comes into play, Floyd Wells, that... Uh, you know, ultimately the informant at the jail who who rats out Hickok and Smith, he drifted around during this time as kind of just a rural criminal and seasonal worker. He grew up on a farm himself, um, having no prospects of containing on his land. But Perry Smith, uh, I should say, he grew up in rural areas too, but never even had a chance mm-hmm. growing up the basically vagabond child of forced displaced people. Mm-hmm. But we'll get into that. Now, during this time, if you became a large or even a corporate farmer, so like farm owned by a company, mm-hmm. it was because you had either, in one in this process, you were successful was because you either had acquired enough credit from a bank to buy the new machinery, fertilizers, and everything that made the production possible, or you became one of the, the like the losing class that we talked right. about. The agricultural <laughs> like, proletariat. So by 1962, in fact, I found this to be illustrative. This was a statistic put forward by Herb Clutter's banker, Kenneth Lyon, you would need in that currency of the time about $150,000 to $300,000 just to start up a farm operation. And that's a decent chunk of change even today. Yeah. Herb Clutter's estate at the time of his death, and he had a, he had a, in Holcomb was considered a huge farm, like a huge farm operation. Uh, New York Times talks about how big his farm operation was. His estate was worth about two hundred thousand that in those days dollars mm-hmm. at the end of it. So you needed more to start up your operation than Herb Clutter, a very very successful man, had at the time he died. Mm-hmm. So, which means that new Herb Clutters, future Herb Clutters, were pretty much impossible for mm-hmm. him to, uh, except as you know agents of large corporate-owned farms or inheritors mm-hmm. of their family businesses. Now I wanted to say like a little bit of a weird side note that like other societies confronted this problem of mechanization, the the tractor fertilizer problem in a different way. And there are examples of, you know, uh, state farms that get Mm -hmm. understandably ridiculed as like unproductive um, and peasant collectors, but also like various other collective farms and keywords seem. But the import, the common thread of all these is that rather than going the route of private, still family farms, 
getting bigger and kind of displacing others. And so it was all of the people who still wanted to be in rural areas holding their resources with some state support. Mm. Um, and I, I want to say America basically kind of went halfway down this path. Mm. Interestingly, in the mid-1950s, the U.S. Department of Agriculture was like buying and owning much of the wheat and cattle from surplus from mm. American farms and just holding it in their own warehouse. Right. Like, it was God's plan. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it, uh, the things I don't know about agricultural economics could disappoint a man. But it, it kind of seems that some of this... But I, as a side note, I want to say there is actually an international element as well to this whole injunction from the Department of Agriculture to get big or get out mm-hmm. of, uh, of farming. And that was there as part of the international drive against communism. As you said, Peter, like Kansas wheat was thought of as like a bulwark against Korean peasant rebels mm-hmm. winning and taking over the peninsula because they were able to basically feed. Yes the Republic of Korea for years mm-hmm. on these agricultural exports essentially mm-hmm. owned by the government. Uh, and the same is true for Italy, for Greece, mm-hmm. um, and essentially guaranteeing that the forces that have fought fascism in World War II wouldn't take over the government. At a certain point, we were we were, we were were trading it to Russia. <laughs> yeah, but I figure this is probably about time. Yeah, where does to... Herb come in? Let's bring in Herb. So the reason for this background is that Herb Clutter is the archetype of the new farmer slash capitalist at the time. Mm. And inside his very prosperous like little manor house is honestly a lot of the a lot of the mechanisms by which uh, very well might have led to his death. So the whole bit before is a rather un- important understanding the, the victimology of her clutter, I'm going to say. Uh, that's what the FBI would call this. It's like, what are the things about this person that might have exposed him to a violent crime? They call that victimology. It's pretty strange on this face that uh, this guy got killed at all. Cody was right about that. Mm, yeah. So Herb was, in all deference to him, uh, although a very nice guy, a kind of a contradictory figure because he is also a ruthless businessman and farmer. Yeah. But inside a cooperative institution, mm. he was the product of agricultural schooling at the time, where they're taught on all the scientific management of a farming enterprise, which in case you haven't heard the, the preceding 20 minutes, turns out to be pretty complicated. Yeah. It's also interesting. So he's within the institution of the co-op, whereas we're so used to neoliberalism. Yeah. Which would say you get rid of the co-op. Yes. You shock therapy it, you you get you nuke it from orbit basically, and that the chips fall where they may. It might be better to, to plainly say that like he is a, a farm owner in a business within a larger like government system yes. and a yes. cooperative system in which he has to seek his advantage and is trying to he gets all these newfangled ideas from mm-hmm. ag school which puts him at a huge advantage to a lot of other like hayseed farmers in holcomb yeah. kansas and Fenny county and garden city and he at first was hired on as a farm manager and he also works institutionally within the co-op and after a few years of that he himself gets his own farm but more to the point he is a Glad-handing, extremely disciplined, tight-fisted, dry, mm, dry, the dries. bone dry, definitely a dry Republican Protestant. Mm. Uh, he's a Methodist. He spared nothing outside his family, his business, and his personal fortune. And on the other hand, 
uh, was in a commanding position in important institutions all over his small community. Mm. And, and the reason I even started thinking about this is uh, I started doing newspaper searches and I found this very weird of its time newspaper kind of allergy to Herb Clutter. It was right after his death. It was like the day after the bodies were discovered. And I'll just read the quote for you here, even though it begins very strangely. Communists notwithstanding, religion does make a difference. Herb Clutter in a short 25 years among us made his mark, gone on from farm agent duties to build up a vast empire of livestock and land, irrigated and ranch. A true capitalist, the Reds would say, but he was the first to attribute his success to divine leadership. Like, if this was 2002, do you think they would have been like, you know, Al-Qaeda notwithstanding, uh, this guy, you know, he, he farmed based on his own merits and not whether, you know, the Quran said to do it. Yeah, like, what the fuck is that? Like, I should say, so after being a farm agent, working on some farms and making them more efficient in Garden City, he founded his own farm where he could really take his entrepreneurial business and bureaucratic acumen uh, to the limit. And he called it River Valley Farm, where there's no river and no valley. Okay, well, I guess, it, I guess it sounds good. Sounds I, good. I mean, that's kind of... That's kind of par for the course for clutter. And I it don't mean this as a denigration. Like, if it sounds good, if it sounds like good public face, he does it. Yeah. So he put this farm, and this is kind of a demonstration, probably why people felt in awe of him, on what was called high-risk land due to inconsistent rainfall. He was quoted in the New York Times as saying, farmers are gamblers. Yeah. Uh, but by 1947, he produced a record 50,000 bushels of wheat. Mm. And by the mid-50s, like 54, he appeared in the New York Times as a kind of sagely voice as on agricultural policy and the question of these price supports that we talked about. What was the right way to go about it? And tellingly, Herb Clutter was very much in favor of the price supports and said that he thought that the kind of clamor in Washington by even drier Republicans than Herb Clutter mm. of the Mormon sort mm. <laughs> that surpluses, agricultural surpluses, too many chickens, too many, too much wheat produced was a bad thing. He thought it was a very good thing. And he said that even if people considered him radical in saying that, he thought there were ways of dealing with it, basically by, by way of the government buying the surplus and distributing it. But on his own in his own life, uh, Herb Clutter was actually uh, very much an authoritarian personality to his mm. own body and vices that actually was even strange and stood out in rural Kansas of the 1950s. So Herb did not do drugs. He did not smoke. And I don't mean weed, I mean cigarettes, mm -hmm. any tobacco. He did not drink alcohol. He didn't drink coffee. He did not swear. He didn't eat excessively, but here's the important thing. Cause like, if that was just him, like yeah, know, that, that's your bag, man, you got the straight edge. Yeah, yeah. He didn't abide any of his workers doing any of these things either. So his workers couldn't drink coffee. Correct. Damn. More importantly, like the, the vice that he was really on about is they couldn't smoke and they couldn't drink. Oh yeah. And I don't think he liked them swearing around his family either. Uh. Notably, he fired workers for stuff like that. You're a farm laborer and you're not allowed to do any of that. That sounds really rough. Yeah. <laughs> With, you know, in small communities like these, it's pretty near to like stealing the food out of the farm laborer's mouth. Yeah. You're not making much already. No. Although Clutter's wages were considered good. Right. And it's not like there's a ton of other farms because they're being more consolidated and it's hard to have your own farm. 
your name and move around. Yeah. Right. And, and you can't get your own farm. So herb clutter fires you. That's you're you're pretty screwed, at least for a bit. Mm. And fired for you know taking the edge off by having a beer. Right. Or in, in Hol- Kansas, it'd be a near beer. Yeah, and Holcomb it was a dry county, so it was actually like a near beer. Yeah, I don't know, it was like three percent, something like that. Uh, it, now, author Gary McAvoy built what I think is a very powerful circumstantial case that this factored into how Floyd Wells may have had a little bit of motive to not mm. like her part. Yeah. So even though in the standard narrative of Capote, Floyd Wells, that prison inmate at Kansas State Penitentiary, is an adorer of Herb Clutter, and he can't believe what happened when he heard that he was murdered and this caused a crisis of conscience. Floyd Wells, it turned out, only worked for Herb Clutter for a few months in 1948 or 1949, and he did not work, it's important to point out, through the whole harvest season. So at some point, he was let go. I mean, notably, none of the people on Clutter's farm and as part of like his normal like team of six people he has on retainer all the time, Mm -hmm. uh, headed up by Vic Ursic, none of them remembered Floyd Wells, Mm -hmm. except to say like, oh, yeah, he worked here at some point. What what happened to that guy? Also, I did the math and uh, 50,000 bushels is about 1,500 tons. (laughs) That's a lot of bread. Yeah. Now, the real means by which Clutter was able to have this vastly expanded farm, besides his like, you know, skill in planning and all that stuff, was, I think, something that makes him kind of like an archetypal, like, almost like the upstanding community guy who very much has to be seen as the upstanding community guy. The credit for machinery is on had to come from banks, co-op, mm-hmm. and so on. He was on at least four different boards whose social relationships would ensure that him getting the funds to continue mm-hmm. farming, continue expanding, would be like turning on a tap. So just a brief list of things that Herbert Clutter was on the boards of. Mm-hmm. The National Wheat Growers Association, which he was a co-founder in 1950. The Kansas Association of Wheat Growers. Mm-hmm. He was the director of the Lions Lodge. Mm. He was the Garden City Co-op president, elected in 1956 for a three-year term. He was sent to the Federal Farm Credit Board by the president in 1950. Mm. He declined reappointment himself in 1957, probably due to his fights with Ezra Taft Benson. Yep. He was on the Western Kansas Development Association, the Methodist Church Board, the local Methodist church, the school construction board. Uh, and I would just say, like, appearances are all important in this environment, in this small mm. town. Clutter's image is a completely buttoned up, even repressive, but still gentle, God-fearing man. And like a hybrid between Oliver Cromwell and Ned Flanders <laughs> is essential to continuing to have his farm, his estate, and prevent his financial ruin. Mm. People need to think that her clutter is an upstanding guy so that they will lend her clutter the money. When inevitably times get tough, these are frequently did. Yeah, these are credit economies. Yeah, in social credit, but back then, you know, before credit scores is a very important thing. So if people, specifically bankers, think that Herb is a stand-up man of integrity, they will lend him money in a bad season. If not, he's on the hook, and that Mm -hmm. means ruin. Now, to give an idea of what Clutter had, because we all know he was a successful farmer, his estate consisted in 3,000 acres of farm and ranch land. And compare that, if you will, for a second, to the 44 anchors that 
um, Richard Hickok's father, uh, mm. heavily farmed. So about 68 times bigger, I think it is. Yeah. So 3,000 acres of farmer land, ranch land, he had wheat, barley, alfalfa, and 800 head of cattle, and a constant household staff consisting of a housekeeper, Gerald Van Fleet, the farm's business manager, Vic Ersick, the farm foreman, Vic Sons, and like three or four others. In other words, this was like a privately owned collective operation. Mm. Needed people who had knowledge to do the stuff. Mm -hmm. That said, like most individual farmers, the rumor is, and this is a rumor that went down to Harper Lee in her notes, mm -hmm. uh, he did have, like many of them, serious debt. So in order, uh, and to kind of put a button on this, the person he probably had the closest relationship in securing credit and making it through these bad times was an associate of his named Kenneth Lyon. He was his business partner. At times, Kenneth Lyon owned parts of River Valley Farm, and he was his banker. And Kenneth Lyon was actually such a successful banker and associate with so many kind of government-supported farmer mutual banks that he moved on, moved on and moved up to Wichita in the year before Herbert Clutter's death. He is the essential part to keeping the machine running. And put a pin in this for later, Kenneth Lyon was also the executor of Clutter's estate yeah. after his death. Yeah. So all of these kind of ex being a winner in this economy by ruthlessness and being dry and having these cultivated relationships means that he did have haters and people who resented him. I'm talking about her clutter here. It's very hard to get a clear picture on who might have had it out for clutter and who didn't like him because of various business dealings. I've been able to screenshot various KBI investigative reports where people's names came up, like uh, Bill Plum and Pete Preston. Uh, in one of these, clutter possibly poisoned the guy's dog. Why? Don't know. In another scenario, Clutter allegedly shot a dog in some kind of John Wick scenario. Even Clutter's farm manager, Victor Ursa, came up, although I don't think he's a suspect in any mm. way. It's kind of crazy. I don't think any of these is ultimately what did Herbert Clutter in. And obviously, I don't think that any of these guys in particular have a connection to the people who killed Herbert right. Clutter. Um, but they complicate the perfect picture that's right. presented. Yeah, we're trying to illustrate that. Uh, you know, this part of Kansas was not, you know, the Garden of Eden at this point, no. if it ever was. It was rapidly changing into something much bleaker mm -hmm. and different, even though it hadn't really made the transformation yet. Okay. In many ways, Sarah Clutter's murder is like the emergence of that. It's like, but the last thing that I want to kind of illustrate here inside the Clutter estate here is body Clutter's life. And this gets to be very controversial among people who say that you're talking bad about the victims if you say that Bonnie Clutter was going through some really bad stuff. But actually, I have total sympathy with Bonnie Clutter. Sorry. Bonnie Clutter was trained as a nurse at a nursing school. She was, by all accounts, very smart, wanted to help people her whole life. She told that to her siblings from the time she was a child. She did little nurse exercises. She never went into nursing, however, as she early on married Clutter, who was a smart, handsome guy. After the birth of their fourth child, which is 15 years prior to the murders, Kenyon, Bonnie suffered incredible physical pain, mm. some, somehow related to her back, mm. possibly part of the birth. Mm. But, and she withdrew from all activity except for certain like public face social events. She did teach at the Sunday school. She did other things. But notably, 
And this is something where this is how it is from the KBI files. She was unable to cook, clean, or do housework. Didn't want to do those anymore. Don't blame you, Bonnie. <laughs> that task gets taken up by Nancy Kenyon and the housekeeper. And the reason that she's not doing these is because she has become, in essence, a recluse, except when she has to turn that public face on. <laughs> she's on a number of barbiturates and other psychiatric medications due to extreme depression. And she's repeatedly hospitalized <laughs> in places way out of town, sometimes where they, the family actually buys in a, or rents an apartment for her as she goes through repeated psychiatric treatments mm -hmm. at some hospital. And obviously, we don't have those medical records. We don't know what treatments they might have done to Mahdi. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the 50s. It's the 50s. It's pretty bad, especially yeah. for a woman going into yes. the medical system. And yes. they use all kinds of things like severe... Electroshock or God knows Drugs, what especially for depression, they were using electroshock at the time. Yeah. I'm not saying they did do that, but it's fairly possible. Oh, yeah. So... And I can't help but like speculate that the fact is that this move from, you know, small farms where basically every member of the family needs to be a part of it to like a mechanized operation, which is like all skilled labor and some combination mm -hmm. of like drifting farm labor. Mm -hmm. It also radically changed the role of women women in, in right. the farm community. You know, this is already the 1950s when you're having mm -hmm. like stifling. Yeah. Uh, repression of women wanting to go into creative pursuits, into the mm -hmm. workforce, able to live an independent life, yeah. but not able to, despite being like like Bonnie Clutter, trained in nursing school. She wanted yep. to help people. Yeah. And instead, she just kind of consigned to living in the shadow of her clutter in the farmhouse. Hmm. But I, I obviously it's probably also a physical thing. It sounds like the birth of Kenyon was mm -hmm. heavily traumatic on her body. Yeah. And she's on a combination of drugs and, and who knows, maybe some of the psychiatric treatments were a reason for the continued depression and everything else. Who knows? But we do know is that Nancy Clutter described her to her friend, William, Wilma Kidwell, and this is in the KBI files, as a ghost to the family. And this gets into an aspect which might very well be important to Herbert Clutter's ultimate death, which is Bonnie and Herb's marriage, such as it was, was a friendly one. It was a cordial one. They did not sleep with each other. Interesting. Besides having you know, the 1950s uh, twin beds like Mary like, Tyler Moore. Yeah, Desi Arnaz. Yeah. Lucy Ball. Uh, so whereas, you know, Lucy and, and Desi slept in separate beds. Uh, Herb Clutter and Bonnie Clutter actually slept in separate parts of their house and had oh, wow. about 10 years, according to both Ken Lyon, the, the banker mentioned earlier, uh, and her doctor, uh, Bonnie Clutter's doctor. But Nancy at one point asked her mother and said, you're married, aren't you? To which Bonnie replied, I'd go crazy if I had to sleep with your father. Oh. And Miss Clutter, according to Nancy Clutter's confidant and teacher, Miss Stringer, was a real mystery-like person, the sort of person you would think of as being kept in an attic. Yeah. And I emphasize this because it, it's not just, oh, all was not roses. It's, I don't, I think that imputes a kind of level of responsibility onto Bonnie for this depression happening to her. Yeah. Rather, I mean, she's been put in this position by being trapped in the social system. Yeah. She's on a fucking farm, like a doll in a dollhouse. Mm. But Herb Clutter being a wealthy, successful man, it's worth noting, and his wife essentially being non-responsive and uh, in Nancy's account, just crying much of the time she's at home and not in you know, a psychiatric hospital. He appears, Herbert Clutter appears to have had an affair 
with the wife of his personal banker, Kenneth Lyon. Now, Gary McAvoy points out that in the KBI files, this appears to be corroborated by two or three sources that Herbert Clutter was known to be stepping out on his wife. Yeah. And two different sources who say they spotted him smooching with and going off to uh, some separate room with yeah. Kenneth Lyon's wife. Mm -hmm. Separate room of like a hotel or yeah. the center of social life, a hotel out on the highway, I assume, or something, or in town? You know, for a person whose entire like existence, this whole stretch of farmland, these 3,000 acres, these uh, 30 or more people working for him, his whole existence is predicated on a public face of yes. respectability and discipline and Christian fidelity and everything mm -hmm. else. How are you affair with your bank is kind of a risky thing. Yeah. Like his wife. So what 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 would I mean was was it just his discipline was cracking or that's tough to say. I mean I do know that in the announcements in the Garden City newspapers that uh Kenneth Lott it actually it would announce in the small town newspapers back then if like someone prominent was like coming back to town and where they were staying. Right. So that you could go and see them. Yeah. So Kenneth Lyon went and stayed at someone else's house, not her Clutter. Mm. Even though he was right. business partners of her Clutter, the executor on his estate. Mm. Now, I'm trying to kind of read into the lines here, but something's never explained in In Cold Blood, in which I believe that we will attempt to answer with some degree of credibility, is how this weird coincidence between the fact that her clutter's world, his risky but otherwise upstanding life, financially, personally, whatever, suddenly seems to be collapsing in a strange way mm. in the weeks leading up to his death. Did that have something to do with his affair? Possibly. Can't say yeah. for sure, but uh, In Cold Blood just presents it essentially as a coincidence that mm. there is this strange looming like dread and doom over Herb Clutter's life and world. And that, by coincidence, these two ex-cons just came in and, and killed him looking for a safe that wasn't there. Yeah. So there is truth to this, however. In the weeks leading up to his and his family's death, Herb Clutter was troubled by something unknown and something that he didn't mention in detail to anyone among his family, his church group, or elsewhere. Uh, in the months before his death and at the urging of his still banker, Kenneth Lyon, Clutter sold off 1,080 acres of his property in a private sale. Mm. And keep in mind, that's 30% of River Valley Farm. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. And also, I found out this was actually in a pretty good year. So Kansas in, in 1959, the wheat harvest was actually pretty good. I don't know if it was good in Holcomb or Garden mm. City, but that harvest was in July. It's also worth saying that at the time of Herb Clutter's death, Benson, the Secretary of Agriculture, is also pressing to cut price supports or let them float. And in addition to whatever financial burden that he was already facing on the farm, that would be ruinous. Yeah, interesting. It's we have pretty any strange. idea where like, his money was going? We don't know. We don't know. Um, but it's pretty crazy to suddenly sell off a third of your farm if you're a successful guy. Yeah. Um, and on a personal level, he suddenly began smoking. Huh. Uh, in a huge, that's a pretty huge behavioral shift for a guy who just emphatically and always publicly does not smoke, does not drink, does not drink coffee, does not do mm -hmm. any stimulants of any kind. And in the day before his death, he took out a life insurance policy. Mm. Now, he had apparently been urged to do so for months and had been planning to, but it, he did it the day before he died. The, 
in, in Capote's telling, this might be a little bit of literary flourish, the life insurance agent still has the policy just signed in his pocket when he finds out that her cluttered death. And so one thing about this whole insurance policy right on the day he died thing, Peter, is he spent like four hours with this insurance agent from New York Life discussing the terms of it and managed to get a $40,000 policy with, and as a noir appreciator, I think you'll appreciate this, with double indemnity. So for our audience, that means that if he was to die by certain uh, discussed accidents, Mm -hmm. uh, including by the hand of another person who is not Herb Clutter, then the payout will be double. So Mm -hmm. on the day he was like within 12 hours of signing off on a policy that he had just arranged and very much, you know, ironed out the terms of for double indemnity, he had $80,000 going to his heirs. And the crucial thing about that I know as as someone who's done some work in trust and estates is life insurance actually bypasses probate. So anytime, you know, when someone's like getting together an estate after someone's died and, and deciding, you know, how what share of the estate goes where and, and liquidating assets, life insurance just bypasses that and puts cash into the designated person's hands. Interesting. So and, and the important that makes sense, but I didn't know that. Yeah. So if you have any like debts, especially if you're, say, a farmer, and according to Herb Clutter, all farmers are gamblers with huge debts, that life insurance is going to bypass all of those creditors kind of lining up to get their piece of your estate and your kid's estate, and it's just going to go straight to your kids, Mm -hmm. assuming that they're the beneficiaries that are written on the policy. Interesting. Yeah, all of which is to say, this seems like someone who expected to die very soon. Yeah. What did the autopsy show any like health problems? No. Hmm. I mean, crucially though, he did have these large outstanding debts and this entire selling off a third of his productive property, right? Yeah, for sure. He's he's giving up the the goose that lays the golden egg. And also, you know, since we've talked about this, his payouts from the government are going to be for total production. So he's giving, he's going from the big farm that's encouraged that gets him more income to uh, something that's going to get him an even lesser payment, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. I can only imagine he would do that because he's been forced to buy a debt. My soft speculation here is that this crumbling of Herb Clutter's world, this sudden dread, this creeping shadow is a real thing and is really connected to the reason he died. There was a contradiction between this public face he was presenting that he needed to present in order to continue to financially survive and the home world he was living in. I think he had an affair with Ken Lyon's wife because she was close by and there was nothing going on with Bonnie Clutter anymore. That's not something you want to do with your banker. And he probably also wasn't doing financially well, which is also something you don't want to do with your banker. His wife you're sleeping with. His wife you're sleeping with, and the community knows it. Hmm. And so it sounds like speculation, but I think it's going to seem much more substantive when we go into the other side of this equation. 
begun the herb clutter as the prosperous winner of this industrialization drive, albeit one who's also teetering. Teetering, yeah, teetering by the intense financial and personal responsibilities of that. Like, frankly, like, I don't envy herb clutter. I think his world is very claustrophobic. So getting back to it, what I think we'll address with the next episode is the other end of this equation, the the underworld created mm. or the underworld of Kansas in this changing mechanized agricultural environment mm. and its its casualties. And we're going to consider without, you know, without undue sympathy mm-hmm. and with a really hard eye, the world of what's called by one former inmate, the devil's front porch, mm. Kansas State Penitentiary. So if you like what you hear, and yeah. I know you do. Yeah. Subscribe to us on Patreon, follow and like us on Apple Podcasts, yeah. Spotify, and uh, follow us on Twitter at AFOVPOD, A-P-H-O-V-POD. Yeah. And I'll see you next time. Listen. See ya.